Welcome, beautiful people, to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Switch's launch in China, Microsoft's budget, Scarlet, Riot's lawsuit settlement, and finally, we're going to end it with talk about Razer's hostile work environment. But I want to start it off by talking about Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. I was finally able to finish it. I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday, I can't even remember. Uh, I was able to finish the story. I thought the ending was a little uh, underwhelming compared to the rest of the game and kind of the lead up to it. Uh, but overall, I, I really liked the game. I I, uh, I thought it was pretty cool. The combat was good. Uh, the Jedi Force powers were nice. The story was good. Um, the puzzles, actually, I really, really liked. There were a, a couple of head scratchers in there that I thought were pretty fun. I'm definitely one of those people that when I play a game and, and, and I get to a puzzle, I, I, I refuse to ever go online and find tips or or, or get tips from inside of the game. There's uh, You can um, talk to BD1 in order to get a tip for any of the puzzles that you're doing. I just refuse to get any of his help. And I just feel like it's a lot more satisfying that way. And, uh, you know, overall, I, I really, really like the game. I'm going to go back to it, you know, finish up all the achievements and then move on to whatever else is in my back catalog, which is, is it's growing every single week now. Uh, but I want to get started with uh, talking about the Nintendo Switch heading to China. Now, most of this information comes from Nico Partners. The Nintendo Switch will launch tomorrow, actually, December 10th, priced at 2099 Yuan, or R, I think it's RMB. I can't even remember exactly how to pronounce the Chinese cover, currency, but it's uh, abbreviated as RMB. That's approximately $300. The price puts it in line with PlayStation 4 over there in China, while Xbox One retails for RMB 3699 which is 300, approximately $340. US The console comes with a one-year warranty and a demo version of new Super Mario Bros. U Deluxe. The full game will be available to purchase from the eShop, but the package version won't release until next February on day one for RMB $299 um, or approximately $42. So definitely uh, the weakest launch lineup <laughs> in gaming history. There's literally, I, I'm from the information I was able to gather, there's only one game it kind of sounds like there are games coming to the eShop but I wasn't 100% sure if those games would be available day one but in terms of legal games created for this console that's um, uh, coming out in, in, in this version of Switch coming out in China there's only one title which is New Super Mario Bros. U Deluxe the game comes with a demo version of it then you can also choose to purchase it from the eShop or wait till next February when they'll have a packaged version of it. Um, this particular piece to me kind of feels like um, Nintendo's understanding how China's e-commerce is a little bit more advanced than uh, the rest of the world. Is um, because gaming is so heavily done on cell phones, a lot of consumers are just a lot more comfortable with spending games spending money on games digitally than physically as as much as it is here in uh, on the west in the west for example so um i see that as it might have been done in a way because they couldn't get the proper approvals through by the by the time the system launched but either way i think it actually is interesting 
to um, launch with an eShop version first just to see how that goes because obviously you're always going to be able to retain more profits by selling a digital version of a game than a physical. Uh, they also announced that uh, other games are, are coming out. Some some big ones were missing, like I think Pokemon was missing from there, but they talked about eventually bringing Legend of Zelda, for example, some of these other big titles that, that released on Nintendo Switch here in the West. But Two that were confirmed that should be available soon are Mario Kart 8 Deluxe and Super Mario Odyssey. Those will be available to purchase in the weeks following the launch. They confirmed that the console is region-free for package games, but that online services and the eShop are region-locked to take advantage of Tencent's local servers. So what I'm gathering from that is that that means that you will not be able to access another country's eShop. I guess we won't know until the system launches tomorrow and people are able to talk a little bit more about it. Um, we get some more hands-on videos on it because that will be interesting to see. It kind of does sound like you won't be able to go to another country's eShop, which is sort of normal um, in the um, the Nintendo Switch as we know it here as it's released in the United States where you can access the Japanese eShop, for example. Uh, and then it also seems that I guess their servers are local, which means that if you buy Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, you won't be able to play online with people around the world. I guess that's kind of what I'm taking away from that. But um, the announcement went really well, actually, within the first nine hours that pre-orders opened at China's largest online retailer, which is JD.com. Uh, their pre-order surpassed 100,000, and this was from a few days ago when the announcement was done, so who knows, those pre-orders probably have gotten even higher since, uh, by now. <laughs> Nico Partners expects Nintendo to sell 100,000 consoles by the end of the year, which kind of seems a little bit far-fetched because the year is about to be over, but uh, the fact that they already have 100,000 pre-orders means that, hey, that, that kind of does seem very, very realistic that they'll uh, absolutely surpass that. Um, also, what was interesting is that Nico Partners expects um, Nintendo Switch to become the console market leader in China by 2022. And um, Nico Partners is basically uh, an analyst company that specializes in, in, in um, the Chinese economy. Um, and, and they have a really big focus on, on video games. Now, uh, this kind of prediction or projection that it will become the console market leader in China by 2022. I 100% agree with that. Um, and I actually want to be surprised if it was able to do that even before the year 2022. Um, or I don't even think it would even cut it close. And the reason why is because, uh, Microsoft and Sony haven't been doing super great in China. China had just recently lifted uh, restrictions to allow consoles to be brought over to China just a few years ago. And then uh, PlayStation 4 and Xbox One entered the market. But China's economy in terms of video games over there is really all almost exclusively mobile. Like uh, PC does really good in China. But mobile is really where a lot of gamers are, um, as we see with some of the games that I think a lot of audiences are becoming accustomed to here in the West, like Crossfire, for example, with Crossfire X coming to Xbox One. Um, shoot, I can't remember the name of the game right now, but the kart racing game that everyone saw at XL19, that's a huge game in China, has a huge, um, it's, it's like a, an official eSport over there. There are huge tournaments uh, every single year. And these are people that are playing on 
mobile phones, which sounds kind of ridiculous here in the U.S., but it's completely normal over in China. So when it comes to a console being able to be successful, Nintendo has the best chance of the you know the big three when it when, when it happens over there just purely because it is a mobile console that you can take with you now this isn't like uh nintendo switch has been completely impossible to get in china china just have a, a quote-unquote gray market um where there are companies and and storefronts that import hardware and software um, so it'll be interesting to see because since the game is, since the, excuse me, the system is region free, um, you'll be able to have a lot of consumers that will be able to, to buy this new one, take advantage of the 10 cent local service and still be able to play the games that they already own, that they were able to purchase through the great market, which is pretty interesting. And I think that is going to fuel sales. So part of it is like, well, that's kind of weird. They only have one game, but technically, um, there are a lot of games available in China. You just have to kind of go through the gray market in order to get it. So um, Nintendo does have the advantage because it is a mobile console. Uh, on top of that, you know, the approval system in China is a lot more strict than here in the United States. Um, in order to get a game to actually be sold to the market in China. As I spoke about in a show a few weeks ago, you do have to partner with a company. You can't just kind of go into the market on your own. That's why Nintendo had to partner with Tencent, uh, which is a good partner for them in order to launch successfully in China. But on top of that, you there is kind of a, a much more rigorous um, process in order to get your game approved. This is another way that Nintendo has an advantage because most of Nintendo's titles are family friendly. The only third party that really is showing kind of a lot of interest is Ubisoft. I think they confirmed four games coming to China, including like a sort of exclusive Rabbids game. I'm not sure if it'll make its way out of China, but they seem very invested in, into this market. doesn't seem like there was a lot of third party talk in, in, in order and in, 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 uh, talking about other companies supporting the Nintendo Switch. But I think that will turn around really, really quickly once you start seeing how successful it is. As long as you have a game that you feel can get through the approval process fairly quickly. So, for example, if it's like a violent video game, it's not very easy to get approved out there. China is starting to much more actively now more than ever crack down on violent video games and kids playing games. There are now curfews set up where kids aren't allowed to play games, you know, for as long as they want, for example. So uh, China is beginning to crack down on stuff like that. So that's where Nintendo has another advantage. And the third advantage is just Nintendo of Nintendo. Nintendo is worldwide known. People in China know Nintendo, they know Mario, they know Zelda, they, they know and understand these franchises. So once Zelda hits over there, once they get Splatoon, they get their hands on Splatoon 2, that's when we'll start to see the sales really, really ramp up. But everything seems to be going good for Nintendo when it comes to debuting in China. This is also another way for them to enter their games into the, the mobile stratosphere over there in China. And Mario Kart has been confirmed as, as the most downloaded game of the year even though it came out late in the year. Um, so for them to be able to to get into the Chinese mobile market, I'm sure something that they're looking forward to also. So sort of a win-win all around um, for Nintendo, especially because they won't really have to do much work to change their games, quote-unquote, in order to fit the Chinese market. Um, because, you know, that's just, those aren't really the type of games that Nintendo makes. So I 100% agree with this. Um, 
assessment that they'll be the market leader in China by 2022. There's also another reason why we see companies like Microsoft going really, really aggressive with software and xCloud because it'll be just a lot easier um, to sell software and services in China if you can convince Chinese consumers that, hey, you can play these games on your mobile wherever you go. Um, it's just a matter of modifying their, their shop to, or their store uh, to fit China. Let's move on to our next story about Microsoft's cheaper next-gen alternative. Earlier this year, we spoke about Microsoft's plans to offer versions of their next-gen console or different versions. Uh, Project Scarlet will have all the bells and whistles, while codename Lockhart will be a diskless and less powerful alternative. Now, once this rumor was released, Microsoft quickly debunked it by implying that they are only releasing one console next holiday, and that will be Project Scarlet. Now, Jason Schreier from Kotaku has learned that Lockhart is still in the works as a cheaper digital-only alternative to Scarlet. When speaking to Kotaku, one game developer briefed on Lockhart analogized it, I hope I said that right, to the PlayStation 4 Pro in terms of raw graphical power, although there are other key differences that might make up for that. Lockhart is said to have a solid-state drive like both Anaconda and Sony's Sony's Anaconda. I thought we were talking about Scarlet. I don't know. Scarlet, Anaconda, I think they're two uh, codenames, or Anaconda was the codename for Scarlet, which is the codename for the actual system. Inception. Uh, and Sony's upcoming PlayStation 5, which is expected to have a significant impact on loading time. Developers briefed on Lockhart also say that it has a faster CPU than any current video game console, which could allow for higher frame rates, although there are other factors that might not become clear until the console is completely finalized, such as clock speed and cooling. Now, uh, this was something that was very interesting to me. I know that on this show we kind of made... Uh, we poked a lot of fun at the Xbox One S and the, oh, excuse me, the X, the Xbox One Sad, the the S All Digital Edition that was released this year. But uh, during Black Friday, it actually was flying off the shelves. Microsoft was selling tons and tons of that console, so I think that it just strengthened Microsoft's belief that hey, this is something that looks like it could work if we execute it correctly. Um, I sort of uh, disagree with uh, this tactic, which is to release a high-end system, you know, Scarlet, I'm expecting to be $499, and then releasing a much cheaper, uh, quote-unquote, weaker alternative, which I think, reading on the stats, number one, would not surpass $300, and I would expect it to be released at $199.99, personally, in order for it to really kind of sounds sweet at retail. I feel like $200 is a great um, way to grab consumers, um, especially when you're you're um, um, positioning it so far away from a $500 price point. I feel like we, when you start talking about $300, I feel like some consumers will say, like, oh, you know, $200 more, I'll be able to get the high end with the best graphics, the most powerful system, blah, 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 right? Um, I personally don't like this um, tactic of releasing two different consoles. You know, you have you're gonna have developers that will have to worry about. Um, I don't think necessarily creating two versions of a game, um, but what that would mean is that we'll go another generation. We'll, we'll, we've been experiencing with Xbox One X, where um, I'll take a disc home and I'll have to download an additional asset pack in order to get that 4K 60 frame per second experience on my on my. Uh, high-end Project Scarlet in order to make up for the people who are uh, purchasing the weaker Lockhart. 
which means that they'll probably be able to get into the game a lot faster um, because they'll be installing just the, the, the quote-unquote base level version of the game. And while installing should be faster in this next generation, loading will be faster. It's still something to, that's still kind of annoying um, that we've been experiencing in this, in this generation. I personally think that Microsoft is better creating um, some sort of a streaming box. You know, you, you package in... A streaming box with an Xbox controller. Hell, it, it could be an Xbox One controller. It doesn't have to be like the brand new super advanced Lockhart. I mean, super advanced Project Scarlet controller, whatever that may be. Um, but it's a simple box. You have an HDMI output. Um, you have an Ethernet port. It has built-in Wi-Fi. You have USB ports for charging. Maybe USB ports for mouse and keyboard options. Options when it comes to you know Game Pass for Beast for PC, for example. Um, you, you package it with a modified version of the Xbox UI, has a store on there, so that's where you download your games. You can download streaming apps like Netflix and Disney+, Plus. Uh, packaged with three months of Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, $100, boom, you ship that. I think that that's a much better alternative because at the end of the day, the way that you're selling a digital system is you're, you're telling consumers that, hey, in order for this to be successful, you, you need online. So I feel like at that point there'll be you're better off with with uh, telling people you know just go online just just sign on to this Project X Cloud streaming service and then you kind of just get it through on on just a a, a streaming box and then you have something that uh, will can potentially replace uh, a family's need for like a Chromecast if or a, a Fire Stick if you include. Um, all these services on there where they can download their Netflix, their Hulu, their Disney Plus. So um, you're able to kind of have a more permanent place in the living room if you create something focused as a streaming box and put it in at a much lower price point rather than doing just a discless console, which you would still need online. The only difference is that once you download the game, you can play it offline. That would be the the main difference between doing that and a in uh, the streaming box, but like I said, I think Microsoft gained a lot of confidence after seeing how well the digital edition was doing. Um, I'm sure they were just as surprised as I was <laughs> to see um, so many com- consumers kind of acclimating it to to it so quickly. But it also speaks to the power of, of, of Game Pass. I'm sure a lot of those people that were buying that digital edition were very, very aware of what Game Pass was. Um, and being able to take advantage of that deal of Game Pass Ultimate, $15 a month, or taking advantage of that entry level of, of um, a dollar gets you three months. I think the digital edition does come with Game Pass inside of the box. I think like a one month or something like that. Can't um, honestly remember. Uh, but it also speaks to to how much um, Microsoft has invested into Game Pass to be able to get people to to buy into this concept of a streaming box, and it's kind of like the first step in 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 something that Microsoft is hoping to reach, which is to get to a point where they're selling less and less boxes and they're selling more and more subscriptions and and digital games and digital services. So um, I think it's good to see. Um, I'm I'm kind of surprised it's still in development since they sort of debunked it without actually saying like, hey, we're not actually working on a, on a secondary version. Um, but then after hearing over the over Black Friday how well the 
digital edition was selling, then, you know, part of me was like, oh, you know, it seems Microsoft's really onto something here. The other part of this article that was kind of funny was um, at the end of it, Jason Schreier says, both companies, meanwhile, have been terrified of Google's entry into the video game space after rumors started circulating in early 2018 that the tech conglomerate was doing something big. Over the past couple of years, a number of developers have remarked to me that staff at both PlayStation and Xbox would talk frequently and reactively about Google's plans, emphasizing each company's own response to streaming as a result. After the tepid launch of Stadia last month, however, the threat of Google appears to have been overstated. The next generation of consoles will remain a battle between Sony and Microsoft and will be one of gaming's biggest stories in 2020. Now, hindsight you you look at this is very very laughable that microsoft and, and, and sony would be even worried about google but you do have to understand once google first um announced this service after having what i considered a very successful beta test with their project stream um if they were able to convince enough developers and have a truly truly massive launch lineup and be able to deliver flawlessly on their services the way that they promised Google Stadia would have been a, a threat to Sony and Microsoft because they would have been able to build up a um, a market share when it comes to game streaming a lot faster. But after kind of releasing with you know what can be considered a whimper, they're not really holding onto any market share at all. So I mean, it's very easy to see why Sony and Microsoft are looking at this as just a very annoying fly that they're both going to eventually swat um, within the next two years. Now, our next story cons uh, concerns Riot, Riot Games finally settling their, settling their lawsuit that we spoke about earlier in the year. Riot Games has agreed to pay out a $10 million proposed settlement collectively to every woman who has been employed by the company at any time over the last five years. The settlement is one of the largest in California history for a gender discrimination suit since the plaintiff's lawyer. I think um, one article I read said that it averages out to, um, I think, about $20,000 per female employee, I believe. Uh, a copy of the proposed settlement obtained by Kotaku notes that each lawsuit participant will receive some amount of money determined by, quote, their tenure length and status as an employee. One reason for the large sum is to make up for what plaintiff's lawyers determined was a significant, significant difference in salary between men and women at the company. Over the last year, Riot has undertaken several steps to mitigate its culture of sexism, including overhauling its recruitment, hiring and promotion processes, Offering clearer job descriptions, removing problem employees, bringing in third-party culture consultants and a diversity director, appointing women into leadership positions, and offering employee channels to offer feedback on their progress. So all of this sounds really, really great. Um, getting that settlement, not only just for the women that were involved in that early arbitration process, but... Um, making part of that settlement um, to be able to pay out to every woman employed by the company in the last five years is a really, really good, positive step for Riot Games. Lord knows they have uh, the money to take this type of hit when it comes to League of Legends. Um, 
all of these changes that they made, you know, changes to their hiring and promotion processes, uh, clear channel to offer feedback, appoint the women to leadership position. All these are positive steps in order to affect change. In August, current employees told Kotaka that the company has made real progress fixing its issues. Unfortunately, several said that progress was undercut by Rise's continued employee employment of senior male employees named in the lawsuit whose sources say have exhibited harmful workplace behavior so it's kind of weird to go through all of these changes but that at the same time you kind of leave a relic just smack dab in the middle of the office um that is a constant reminder of this um this uh, oversight that you had as a company um, when it came to um, respect and the safety of the workplace for your employees so the fact that People that were named in the lawsuit are still employed by the company, and and part of this settlement wasn't um, even like a severance package for those 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 uh, people, or, or or even getting them fired for for their behavior. It's sort of weird to go through all the. It, it kind of really undercuts everything that has been done, or all these steps that Riot is making. If you don't take the step that probably should have been step number one which is, yeah, we should probably remove these people that were included in this lawsuit that are kind of at the, the very center of all of these issues that we're hearing about. Um, one current employee said, quote, it's great that Riot has decided to compensate women for the abuse they suffered here, but their rhetoric about healing and moving on leaves something to be desired. It's difficult to heal and move on when we are faced with the reality that at the end of the day, Riot prefers to pay the women still here for the trouble of continuing to work with alleged abusers. And uh, yeah, it just seems really weird that they would go through all of these steps, um, this $10 million um, um, settlement, go through all these steps of trying to make positive changes to uh, hopefully detract anyone from doing the things that these men did and um preventing a situation like this from ever happening again but then forgetting like this giant piece of the puzzle which is removing the people that were originally responsible for all of the issues that you're facing right now with this lawsuit um and on top of that you're technically opening yourself up um to future issues from the same people and you're opening um, these employees up to um, repercussions from those leaders in some way, shape, or form. And usually when it comes to a settlement or something that has to go to the human resources department um, from a company, the person that has been accused of doing something, they're uh, legally not allowed to retaliate against an employee. So maybe that might mean, um, you know, knowing that this employee did was the one that opened a complaint against you in retaliation, you would um, cut that employee's hours or aggressively find a way to fire that employee or um, take that employee off of specific projects, for example. Um, that is considered retaliation. And according to um, uh, a lot of laws, that's illegal when it comes to um, the workplace. The issue, though, is that a lot of employees don't um, report those type that type of retaliation, and the reason why they don't do it is they they uh, do not report it out of fear of losing their own job, and um, that's something that 
is this common thread amongst all of these stories that we've been hearing about this year in terms of hostile work environments from these different companies within the video game industry is uh, they've created a culture of fear and, and um, uh, company culture is very, very important. And it's also very, very different for different types of companies is really the way that you mold um, the way that your employee enters the into the workplace every single day of their lives, you know, um, their attitude, their outlook, um, towards your company and towards their own output output of work is really a lot of it is determined by the culture that you set for your company. So a lot of these companies, the common thread that you notice is that there's a, there's a culture of, of fear, a fear of losing um, uh, your job or a fear of being blacklisted from the rest of the industry because you work for, for um, these powerful figures within the industry and you kind of feel like Look, if I report this person or if I if I mess up, if I don't work this overtime, one phone call and, you know, I'm being told that I'll never be able to work in any other company within the industry ever again. And for a lot of these employees that are super, super passionate and know that, hey, this is what I want to do for the rest of their lives, then they're not really willing to take that risk. And a lot of that is due to this culture of fear that is created. And that goes into our next story about Razor and Razor's CEO. This was a story up on Kotaku by Cecilia D. Anastasio. Um, she interviewed 14 former employees, most of whom spoke anonymously out of fear of repercussions. Now, the entire article revolves around Min Lian Tan, who is the co-founder, CEO, and creative director of Razor. And Razor, of course, is famously known as a PC peripheral company, or that's how they started with creating mice, moving on to keyboards, then expanding you know, to mouse pads, monitors, even laptops, phones, and things like that. And the entire article is about Min Lian Tang and this sort of culture that he's created within the company of kind of being, um, you know, one hand on the trigger, um, sort of dictatorship, as even he refers to it, um, that he runs in terms of Razor as a company. Now, the article starts with Tan emailing his marketing employees, telling them that he was officially pissed off that the company wasn't included on Fast Company's 2014 list of most innovative companies. After Director of Marketing Greg Aegis, I believe is how you pronounce it, Responded by telling Tan he should start a media tour in order to increase his chances. He was fired hours later, according to employees. Now, uh, according to what was told to Kotaku, um, Min Lian Tang was basically pissed off, um, cursing F-bombs left and right in terms of not being included on this list. And when his director of marketing was telling him about how they spoke to him about doing a possible media tour in order to get him in front of um, Fast Company in order to potentially make the list, he sort of looked at it as, well, oh, because I didn't go on this media tour, that means that you don't do your, your effing job or you don't do your job, for example. And according to three employees, this employee was fired three uh, or fired just a couple of hours after that interaction. Razor replied to Kotaku by saying, quote, no one would have ever been terminated for one such manner. Uh, Razor employees, um, other things that were brought up in the article 
Brazier employees said they'd stay overnight at the company's original offices in Carlsbad, California to get work done, and that if they weren't available at all hours to take phone calls or answer emails, they feared they would be fired. And this is something that we, um, that echoes a lot of the other conversations that we talked about on this show earlier in the year with the things that we heard about with EA and Anthem, the things that we heard about with Netherrealm, for example, is once again, there's this culture of fear, people being afraid that, you know, hey, if I get an email at 8 p.m. and I don't respond to it, or if I get a phone call at, you know, 11 p.m. and I don't pick up the phone, I'm afraid that I'm going to be fired for it, even though it's technically against the law to work off the clock. And once you're responding to an email, picking up a phone call, anything that's work related, if especially or not especially if you are not a uh, salary employee, I think they call them non-exempt employees. If you're not one of those and you're getting paid by the hour, um, then it's illegal for the company to basically force you or to retaliate against you. If you do not answer emails at any certain point or they can't come up to you the next day and say, hey, I sent you a text at 11 p.m. Why didn't you respond to me? Your answer should always be, well, I wasn't on the clock. I'm not working right now. So um, the expectations are different if you're a salaried employee in, in a lot of companies. But a lot of these things can lead into, you know, mental health issues Um when it comes to employees not being able to, you know, what I used to call basically turn off your job, you know, once you clock, clock out for your job, it's it's just extremely beneficial to your mental health to be able to put work behind you. And, and, and once you walk out the door from wherever you work, whether it's retail or office building, once you walk out the door, your, your work stays within that building. It's so very, very important. And the issue is that a lot of these CEOs don't really... Honestly, they just don't really care about it. <laughs> you know, they just, they want the work done. They're the ones that are making the big bucks. They're not the ones that have to work so hard for it. Um, so that's why they have this massive expectation for you to be thinking about the company 24-7. Um, unhappy employees stuck around because they were promised a massive payday once Tan took Razor public. And basically, he was implying that the long hours would lead to big checks. Kind of saying things to... Employees kind of implying that they would get Lamborghinis and like, you know, the day before the company went public, he was telling his employees like, you know, hey, I don't want anyone driving their Lamborghinis into work or into the employee parking lot, sort of implying that, hey, we shouldn't be showing off, blah, 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 all this stuff, kind of painting this picture to his employees. Of like, hey, these stock options that you guys are getting, you know, yeah, you're working 100 hours a week, but, um, you know, it's going to lead to a huge payday. It's all going to pay off once once uh, I take the, the company public. Several former employees believe they were fired for minor transgressions and fits of volatility volatility along the lines of what happened to marketing, marketing director Greg Aegis. Alan Mazur, former global director of public relations at Razor, is currently involved in a complicated legal battle with the company over his own alleged wrongful termination, which Razor disputes. Now, one employee said they were let go in 2013 after running projected numbers for Razor product sales and determining that the company would not be able to hit Tan's lofty sales goals within the requested budget. Quote, I was very adamant about it. These are the numbers I'm committing. Either I get the resources I need and I'll hit this number or you're not going to give me the resources I need and it'll come in at this was what the former 
employee recalled, adding that one of their colleagues backed up their calculations. They were already working nonstop to meet sales goals, they said, but they were terminated for not clearing what they said was an impossible bar. So to recap, um, an employee that they hired and trusted um, to work in the sales department, crunch numbers, come up with a respectable budget, came to them and said, look, we're not going to hit these numbers unless you give me A, B, C, and D. Um, if you don't, we're not going to hit these numbers. Of course, they didn't hit the numbers because it was deemed impossible by the person that you once again trusted and employed to take over that, um, to take over that position. And then the person was fired for Razor's response says, uh, Razor's response, um, to Kotaku's article is quote, like in most companies, we have sales team members that miss hit or overachieve on their own targets. So very much um, a company robotic response. Tan also had a reputation for volatility, once threatening to punch an employee in the face, said one former employee who said they witnessed that incident. A second former employee who was being disciplined by Tan said Tan threw an object past him in anger. Now, the object didn't hit him, but he threw it past him. In an email exchange, Tan himself said, quote, if a product does not meet my standards, I may express dissatisfaction, including by raising my voice. There have also been occasions where a prototype has not met my standards, and in the design meeting, I have thrown the prototype to the wall or on the floor. His reason for his behavior, he says, is, quote, to demonstrate my dissatisfaction with the design, engineering, or quality of the prototypes. So this is when you know that you're um, kind of in the wrong, <laughs> is when you start to create a narrative or create a scenario um, or paint this picture where these absolutely crazy, heinous things that you're doing are completely normal and are the only way to get your point across. So according to Tan, the only way to motivate his employees and get his point across would be to raise his voice, scream at them. Um, a lot of employees confirmed that he would curse regularly um, and berate them regularly, whether it was behind closed doors or with the door wide open so everyone can hear. Um, or then, of course, throwing objects at the wall or on the floor in anger um, according to him, this would it's uh, in in his bubble in his mind. This is the only way to motivate his employees, and that's that's how you know you you've reached a certain threshold of of um, insanity <laughs> is when you start to normalize these types of things and you start to convince yourself um, and then attempt to convince others that hey, this is really the only way that I can. Um, motivate my employees like yes have I thrown stuff on the floor and raised my voice yeah but you know I only did it to uh, show people that I was dissatisfied as if you there are absolutely no other ways to express dissatisfaction such as telling people look guys this is just not good we need to get this looking better we need to this is not what we talked about this is not what we need um, we have to do a better job blah 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 and rallying the troops that way you know, you, you don't have to be an asshole in order to get your employees motivated. Now, Tan denied throwing objects at employees or threatening violence toward them, saying, quote, I have made statements to the effect of don't make me punch you in the face or I'll send my killer robots after you. But those statements have all been figurative, figurative or in jest. Because, yeah, everyone knows you're joking when you tell someone, yeah, when you're the CEO of, of a company, the person who has their finger on the button and can basically 
completely change the course of an employee's life in, in a split second. I'm sure they know you're joking when you say, quote, don't make me punch you in the face. <laughs> um, two other former employees referred to men as, quote, verbally abusive, saying they'd hear expletives and insults coming from Tan's office whenever he called in other staff for dis- dis- disciplinary talks. Two others said that at a town hall meeting, Tan told attending staff that he was a sociopath. Employees interviewed by Kotaku said they had to go through long, brutal periods of overtime, as is common across the video game industry, with some estimating that they work 60 or even upwards of 100 hours a week to prepare for trade shows. And Razor's response to this, I don't have the actual quote here, but, um, you know, it was kind of in layman's terms just saying like, yeah, you know, if there's a trade show, it's, it's sort of normal in this industry for us to work extra hours. But it's not, we, we don't look at it as an expectation, for example. You know, this is such a common uh, quote that we've been hearing all year when we've been talking about crunch here on, on Camp Koji. And um, once again, it's, it's, it's um, companies within this industry actively trying to normalize something that is just completely bizarre and should be completely abnormal. And... It's, it's very indicative of the times that we live in right now in social media and around the world with, you know, we, we, we see it with, with politicians that just, you know, just blatantly lie, you know, and, and almost try to convince the American people that, you know, uh, because I'm saying it, because I'm a, a figure of authority you should believe what I'm telling you. Don't believe what you're seeing. Don't believe what you're hearing. So it's almost like don't believe your morality. Don't believe that, you know, 60 to 100 hours a week is just absolutely asinine to ask from any human being, you know, because this is normal. This is normal. This is just what we do in this industry. And it's, it's conversations like that and statements like that that show that there's just no industry right now currently on the face of the earth that is in a, a more greater need of a union than the video game industry for, for reasons like this. I mean, the video game industry generate, generates billions and billions of dollars, the biggest ge- entertainment industry every single year. And it, it's only growing and growing and growing because of all of these different sources of revenue that companies can generate from this one industry, whether it's streaming, digital, physical, um, partnerships, you know, sponsorships. There's, there's so many avenues for revenue that to hear that within this industry, we still have men and women working 60 to hundred hours a week, um, to deliver a title or in a razor's case to prepare for a trade show. It's just ridiculous that we're still hearing about stuff like this. Now, one former employee said their son was admitted to the ER after a car crash. While he was still in the hospital, they said their boss told them to get back to work. Another said he was asked to work on his honeymoon. And obviously, when it comes to any story, um, there are always two sides to a story. Um, but there are just certain scenarios that employees talk about where it's like, you know, would someone make something up like this? And based upon the other information that we've heard about in this article, this all seems extremely plausible that while someone's in a hospital, their boss will call them and say, Hey, maybe, maybe start it off with, Hey, you know, how's your son doing? I heard he was in the ER. He got in a car crash. Oh, that sounds great. Oh, so he's stable. 
you know, also he's resting. So, you know, since he's resting, do you mind like coming into uh, to work? Um, because for a lot of uh, CEOs and a lot of managers and companies, they've been managers for so long or some of them have never been kind of the cogs in the machine. They've never been kind of entry level employees that they don't really they begin to lose their humanity. They, they, they begin to um, lose that understanding of. Hey, just because my son is doing well doesn't mean that I'm mentally prepared to just go work at uh, my desk right now. Like I might be physically prepared. Like, yes, maybe my wife is here to watch my son so I can physically walk over to the to 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 work on something. But I'm not mentally there. And it's it's just something that is, is another epidemic that's that's happening, not even here in the U.S., but around the world about companies is not taking mental health seriously. Now, uh, one employee said that after the financial crisis in 2008 around the holidays, Tan would ask employees not to take paid time off. The employee recalled Tan effectively saying that if employees took unpaid days off or came in and worked regardless, they get bigger bonuses next year, which is completely, totally illegal. There's no way, <laughs> there's no way something like that is legal for someone to uh, for a company to tell employees, hey, if, if you don't take that paid time off, if you don't take that week of vacation, you're going to get a bigger bonus next year. Look, if you're if you're an employee for a company, please don't be a sucker. If it's not in writing, it never happened. If it's a conversation, it's no, there's no such thing as a handshake deal. It doesn't exist nowadays, okay? Especially when you're talking about these these huge companies that obviously just don't give a single shit about you as a human being. Like, don't ever think that something like that is actually real. Three employees also said the senior vice president who ran Razor's U.S. offices, Mike Dilmajani, angrily phoned them while they were on vacation, asked them to come back to work or sometimes yelling. Three former employees said a small percentage of Razor employees have been receiving, excuse me, let me read that again. Three former employees said a small percentage of Razor's employees should have been receiving overtime, but did not and were afraid to argue for it. Quote, people were intimidated and they were not able to record their actual hours they worked, said one former employee familiar with the matter. Quote, everything was based on a culture of fear. Employees had to get the job done, but they were intimidated, fear of job losing if they were to record extra hours. This is obviously horrible. For employees to work these extra hours, work upwards of 100 hours a week, not be able to record their actual hours, and then at some point get to a, a mental state where they felt if I record this the way that it actually happened, if I record that I worked 100 hours instead of 60 or 70, I am afraid that I'm going to lose my job. That's horrible. No human being should ever, ever work in, in an environment like that where they're afraid to record the hours that they actually worked. Now, I want to end this with just going through a couple of employee quotes that were peppered throughout the article. Quote, Razor looks like this cool place to work, but when you get in there, you realize you're fighting for your life all the time. Either you're working hard or you're being told to bugger off. Now, this is sort of in the same spirit that we've been hearing about um, in, in the other stories that we spoke about 
earlier in other shows. You can find it um, on the podcast directory if you haven't um, seen any of those other episodes where we spoke about the environment in in uh, EA when when it was, came to the development of Anthem or Nether Realm, for example, with all these amounts of crazy crunch that we that we spoke about throughout the year. Um, this, like I said, is a common thread. The culture of fear is a common thread. Um, the feeling that you're fighting for your life is a common thread. Uh, being afraid to report things, being afraid of, of, of going to human resources because you're so afraid of losing your job. And I think people that have comfortable job security or people that are happy with their jobs might look at these articles and sort of be very quick to say, well, to these employees, we'll just leave or say, well, you're legally protected. You can get a lawyer, um, save those emails, you know, record those conversations, um, you know, write everything down that's happening. You know, uh, don't be afraid to go to human resources. That's why well, that's why it's there. But it's just not that simple. And the reason why it's not that simple is once again, is because the culture has been created. It's not you're, you're not you're not viewing this scenario with a clear head. You're not viewing it from these outside pair of eyes. You're viewing it from within this machine that has been created to completely just break you down to the point that you feel that fear, that you become afraid. Uh, quote, his management style became ruling by fear, said one former employee. Quote, he was without question a dictator. This was one of his quotes. This is not a democracy. This is a dictatorship that he qualified it, meaning I am in control. There was nothing too big or too small. He didn't want to be controlling. Everything went through him. Nothing was done without him. Quote, end quote. When asked about this, Tan said, quote, I have referenced decision making in the company as a benevolent dictatorship in the sense that someone needs to hear feedback from various sources and make a business decision and be held accountable for that decision. That is what we call a bullshit explanation for something that you said. Come on, like we're not stupid. When when if you tell your employees like this is a dictatorship, you're not saying like, oh well, obviously I mean a dictatorship because everything goes through me and I'm the one that's making the decisions. Like we all we're all big boys and girls. We know what a dictatorship is. Stop stop with the bullshit. Quote: I think the culture of the company was inf- and this is from uh, an employee. One former employee, quote, I think the culture of the company was influencing people like me to overlook problems in the moment, adding that the culture came from the top. Speaking from high positions at well-regarded game companies, several sources say they're still in contact, treating each other as war buddies. And once again, like I said, this is like psychologically, mentally breaking someone down. That's why... You know, it's common for us to hear that term of war buddies or we went through hell Um and almost like having that camaraderie with other people who went through this mental kind of psychological war that they had to endure, you know, quote, I definitely had a lot of good opportunities at Razor. In the end, it was positive, but there were a lot of challenges, said a second former employee. I likened working at Razor to Stockholm Syndrome. You bonded with the people you work with. There's nowhere else I've been at where you bonded like that. But we all bonded over fear of what management was going to do with us. The reason for the bonding was survival. Absolutely horrible. Likening working to a company to Stockholm Syndrome. And like I said, that's what 
is created when you uh, infuse this culture of fear of making employees afraid of losing their job, especially in, in, in this economy. We're talking about men and women that have families. So you have to be able to understand why they will be afraid of losing their jobs and not being able to find another one, especially when you're talking about the games industry was very, very dependent on location. These people can't just all of a sudden lift their entire families up and move to another location in order to take a job in Edmonton, for example, and move away from California or anything like that. Um, you know, these opportunities don't always exist within um, the same exact state that you're living in. So you can quickly understand why a lot of them will be afraid. But but to um, liken Razor to having Stockholm Syndrome, you know, the reason for bonding with survival is just disgusting, man. Quote, there was a camaraderie that was formed because of all the things people went through together, said one former employee. Camaraderie or commiseration? Who knows? Wow. So that's a lot. Uh, it's obviously a lot. And like I said, this was on Kotaku by Cecilia D'Anastasio. If you have time, definitely read through the articles. It's a very, very good read. It's very, very well written. Like I said, it came, uh, I believe it was 13. Let me scroll up on my notes. <clears throat> 13, excuse me, 14 former employees. So this is definitely not just coming from one person. Um, and we're talking about, um, obviously, a company that probably employs thousands of people in different countries. And sometimes I think it's it's simple for some people to look at these stories and say, well, it's only four, 14 uh, former employees. Once again, these are probably employees that moved on. Who knows if some of them are even still with the company. A lot of them spoke, actually not a lot of them, every single one of them spoke on behalf of an, an, an anonymity. Um, and that could either mean, A, they still work for the company or more than likely because of the years that we were hearing about throughout the story, some from 2006, 2014, they're still afraid of the power that Tan has over them um, within the gaming industry of possibly blacklisting them from ever you know, working for any other company or being able to strike down any opportunities that they're working on. So you know that culture of fear even follows people potentially after they've left this company. And like I said, these CEOs, these people who um, make their money on the broken backs of the working class, they don't, once again, they don't truly, truly understand um, the potentially the potential life impact that creating a work environment like this can have on the rest of a person's life. You know, you can really mentally break someone down to the point that A, they completely lose their passion within the industry. B, and this is something I've brought up, if I'm a person from the outside looking in, seeing these articles throughout the year that we've been seeing from different outlets, especially Kotaku, and I'm thinking about getting into this industry, it's one of those things where I'm like, holy shit, like, why the hell would I even want to step foot into something like this it really is you you're 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 basically saying you're gonna prepare yourself for mental warfare you're gonna prepare yourself um to the point where you are shortening your life whether it's physically or mentally because of the hours they're going to be working because of what you have to put up with and now a reminder that tan is among the 50 richest people in singapore his fortune is swelling to $1.6 billion, according to Forbes. Tan was hailed by some news outlets as the youngest self-made billionaire in Singapore. And this is, like I said, this is an issue that we hear about 
on an everyday basis. Obviously, we speak about, and within the context of what we talk about here in Camp Koji is within the video game industry, but billionaires have been just this hot button, hot topic issue we've been hearing about all year, but it's, you know, the thing that's really, really bringing it to light and hopefully um, having people see billionaires in a different light is the fact that once again, these billions are made on the, 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 the broken backs and the broken minds of hundreds of employees that are being affected by this. And the reason why only 14, we're hearing only from 14 employees, a lot of it might be because people are still, once again, they're still afraid to come forward. There are people who don't believe in, 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 in remaining anonymous, you know, that truly are afraid that if they speak to an outlet, somehow someone within that company will find out and it will come back to bite them in the ass. And like I said, these are employees that probably don't even work for the company anymore. That's how far-reaching a culture that's cultivated like that can just bore themselves into a person's brain where they're, they they can feel that fear. They can have this mental, you know, this mental stress with them for the rest of their lives. And it's one of the reasons why I always tell people, like, look, you always have to look out for number one. I've been saying this for a good part of my life. Whenever I hear anyone talk about how great a company is, look, I've worked for some amazing companies. But the one thing I always tell people is that at the end of the day, you are still a number. You can be easily replaced. And look, there are a lot of great companies out there. Um, A lot of people know that I used to work for Nintendo. I think Nintendo was an amazing company. But no matter how much I loved working at that company, I never once said to myself, you know, um, this company can do no wrong. There's not a single employee in the company that can, that can do me wrong. I have 100% job security. I can work here for as long as I want. I always had that in the back of my mind. You know, as much as I love this company, it's still a company. I'm working to make the money. We came to an agreement. They're going to pay me this much money. And this is what I'm going to deliver in exchange. It's still a contract between a person and a company. Never, ever put a company before your own needs, your mental needs, your physical needs, the needs of your family. And now it's really gotten to the point where if you're thinking about getting to this industry, start doing more and more research. Make sure you're reaching out to people. Go on social media. Go on LinkedIn. Reach out to people within this industry, whether it's designers, whether it's illustrators, artists, directors, and really speak to them about, hey, what's it really, really like to work within these companies? And and you know, you never know, someone might reach out to you and, and use that to make an informed decision of whether or not you really, I, you, you, this is coming from a person that absolutely loves this industry, but hearing more and more of these stories, I've gotten to the point where I'm like, you know, you got to put yourself before anything and anyone else, especially when it comes to something like your mental health, that's something that you're going to carry with you for the rest of your life. And um, healthcare is a very, very big topic here, especially here in America. And mental health care in America is just an absolute joke. And it's one of those things that it's like, it's something that you're going to have to live with for a, a, a big chunk of your life. So 
you know, make sure you do your research, make sure you really think these things out before you even step a toe within this industry. And this is why it's it's very, very important that this industry begins to move towards unionization because of stories like this. So I once again commend Kotaku for bringing a story like this to light because stories like this just put more and more and more pressure on these companies to make changes and hopefully put pressure on these different uh, employees to come together in order to unionize. This week's hot releases, December 9th, we have Ashen finally coming to PS4 and Switch. We have GTFO finally coming to PC. This is a game that I've been looking forward to for a while. I Unfortunately, I don't think my PC can even run it. But if you haven't heard about GTFO, it's like this four-player uh, co-op survival game definitely check it out it looks amazing i really would like to try it december 10th we have shovel knight showdown coming to almost every single system imaginable 3ds linux mac pc ps4 ps vita switch xbox one mech warrior 5 mercenaries on pc once again this is all december 10th blacks ad under the skin ps4 switch xbox one terminator resistance finally coming to ps4 and xbox one boneworks december 10th pc vr if you haven't heard of boneworks or seen boneworks i definitely recommend please go on youtube check out a video of boneworks if you want to see what vr looks like when it's properly done in a first person uh shooter type of experience please look at boneworks in my opinion this is a game that i've been following for years it's without a doubt the most innovative vr game and it's the first vr game that i saw that i was like holy crap this would definitely convince me to buy into vr and even now the game is out i've sort of been uh sort of on the fence i've sort of been looking at different prices thinking about it but i'm still not ready to pull that trigger dragon quest builders 2 finally comes to pc the same day in december 12th we have detroit become human uh releasing on pc time to wrap it up here are the stories we weren't able to get to uh trailer for kingdom hearts 3 dlc remind went up on square enix's youtube page and then was quickly made private the trailer revealed that the dlc is coming to ps4 on january 23rd and xbox one on february 25th now my reaction to this news was twofold number one this supports that theory that sometimes people talk about but sometimes leaks happen on purpose this definitely looks like a leak that happened on purpose but number two if it didn't happen on purpose someone hit a button by mistake why the hell would you even take it out the internet is forever once it's up is up for the rest of its lifetime you might as well just keep the trailer up to prevent people to get from getting their their um insight into the trailer secondhand just didn't make any sense for it to go down and it hasn't uh as of today's episode it has yet to go back up this saturday december 14th fortnite fans can head to risky reels to watch an exclusive scene from star wars the rise of skywalker with special guest jj abrams once again fortnite uh wielding their power of pop culture and being able to uh, create these very very unique experiences for the people that are playing the game i wonder if someone can crunch the numbers for how much value fortnite uh, has brought to fans um for free and how many people spend money on fortnite purely because of events like this that increase brand loyalty is pretty amazing u.s representative duncan hunter 
uh, Republican said he will soon resign from Congress, uh, excuse me, Republican from California said he will soon resign from Congress after pleading guilty to charges of misusing over $250,000 in campaign funds, including $1,528 that he spent on Steam, excuse me, on Steam games. Now, this was a story that broke earlier this year. I think at one point he blamed it on his son. Then he went on TV and completely threw his wife under the bus. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. But he finally said that he's going to resign. Took you long enough. Thank you for using uh, public money uh, to purchase whatever the hell it was that you were purchasing on Steam. Uh, on December 12th, Nintendo's adding six games to its Nintendo online lineup. Star Fox 2, Super Punch-Out, Kirby Superstar, and Breath of Fire 2 for SNES. And Journey to Silius and Crystallis for NES. Every time I hear these stories, I just you know, the first thing that pops up in my head is, man, Nintendo just continues missing the boat on monetizing their retro games. No one has nostalgia unlocked the way Nintendo does. The fact that they're, they're drip-feeding these games instead of creating an all-you-can-eat service, once again, it just, it just plain and simple, does not make any sense at all that Nintendo's not doing this, monetizing it in a way that is Netflix for video games, a Game Pass type service for retro games should be a lot easier to ex execute, especially since the licensing and all the work is going to come from within because you're going to really drive the service with your first party titles. And then who knows, maybe you can put remasters on there. Hey, a remaster of the original Legend of Zelda, maybe you know, increase the graphics just a bit. I just hate that they, they just continue to turn their back on, on, on that um, that service. Sony has announced that the last state of play is tomorrow, Tuesday, December 10th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. It's going to be around 20 minutes, and Sony says we should expect news, game reveals, and updates. Hopefully, uh, I hope we see an update on Ghost of Tsushima. Uh, Resident Evil 3 is also heavily rumored to debut um, or, or be... Um, in the show or kind of quote-unquote the official announcement for Resident Evil 3. I think it'll be really interesting to see um, Capcom get a quick turnaround for Resident Evil 3. I know there's a part of me that feels like we won't have to wait very long in order to get our hands on this game. Uh, and then, like I said, for me, hopefully we see an update on Ghost of Tsushima. There's a lot of rumors about a new Crash game. I've been hearing about a Crash and Spiral game for a while now i don't know if that was canceled but who knows maybe it's crash standalone maybe it's both of them in one game we'll see jeff keely has announced what fans can expect from this week's game wars announcements quote we have a bunch of brand new games being announced at the show there are around 10 new games slash projects being revealed if you want to count the things that no one has heard about yet so it's a big week for announcements we have uh state of play tomorrow and then we have the game awards airing this thursday december 12th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And then one story that actually broke this morning uh, before I started recording was that 2K confirmed that Bioshock is now in development, is being developed by a new studio that they created called Cloud, excuse me, Cloud Chamber. Um, now, Jason Schreier actually broke this, I think it was April 2018. He was talking about what happened to the developers Hangar 13 after Mafia 3, which was sort of successful I, I really like the game personally and um he sort of confirmed that um some of those employees were moved into a studio to work on a top street top secret studio to work on a new bioshock 
Um, and it looks like this is the studio that he was talking about, Cloud Chamber. Uh, 2K did confirm that Bioshock is still years away from release, but uh, going off of Jason Schreier, it looks like they've probably been working this game for over a year or two now, so who knows, maybe we'll hear about it in 2021 or 2022. Uh, and that's our show. Shout out to Cecilia D. Anastasio, who was announced that she is leaving Kotaku and taking her talents to Wired. Uh, for those that don't remember, Cecilia is responsible for some of the biggest industry exposés that we've spoken about uh, on Cap Cody this year. Uh, the talk about the esports bubble, uh, the culture of sexism at Riot Games that we talked about in this show, about the uh, settlement uh, today, even today's story about Razor CEO as well as Cecilia D'Anastasio, an amazing journalist who has decided to leave Kotaku moving over to Wired. I'm looking forward to uh, even more amazing articles. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me. And please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at KepKoji for future updates. Once again, I am Joel, and I will see you guys next week.